This building is so damn crowded. People everywhere you step just wandering. It's the kind of crowded that makes the air hot and humid with only the use of body heat. The kind of crowded where you can hear nothing and everything in the din of horrible, blurry noise. It's dark, too. Management is just too cheap to replace all the light bulbs, so some of them just stay out. There are so many dark corners where God knows what is happening. Sometimes they're screaming. You just have to tune it out. God, I hate it here. My uniform is white, but I think the color was a poor choice considering everything here is filthy. It's rare to go home not looking worse for the wear. Thank God for utility-grade bleach, am I right? Here, the night shift isn't super different from the day shift, considering the patients, if you can even still call them that, have lost all sense of time. It's not like anyone puts them to bed or bothers to wake them up. They just lurch around at all hours, their eyes already black from the procedure. They never keep their hands to themselves. And I don't want to know where they've been. They're always reaching and grabbing and prodding for something. Some nurses simply start locking doors and then clock out, leaving whatever is behind them for the next shift to deal with. The mess is everywhere. And the smell? Don't even get me started. My family always says, have some pity, they can't help it. <laughs> yeah, okay. They're all here for a reason, because no one else could handle them. Pity my foot. They should pity me. I work the graveyard shift tonight, which in this place could mean digging actual graves. We don't do that during the day because we have nosy neighbors. I try to tell the orderlies to just throw them in the incinerator, but they don't want to get caught breaking the rules. Cowards. I should just set fire to this whole dump and be done with it. Oh, here they are now following me through the halls like drunk puppies, their tongues wagging away. Back up, boys. I said, back up, boys. Back up! Oh no. Hello? Can anyone hear me? I'm locked in the old stairwell, the one that is no longer in use. I, I can't move my legs. I've been here... I don't know how long I've been here now. I screamed through the entire first night, well, after I woke up, that is, and since then I've lost all track of time. I know there are orderlies here. I've seen their shoes from under the door. I know they're ignoring the screaming, just like I did. They think I'm one of them. The space under the stairs whispers to me now. Sometimes it reaches out with its invisible hands and slides scratches down my back. I'm always reaching out, trying to grab onto someone or something, looking for help. Sometimes I just laugh hopelessly into the abyss. Sometimes I cry for my own impending death, and sometimes I just wail in desperation. Oh God, I am one of them. This is what it's like. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for everything I did, everything I said. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. It's been years now, and most of the patients are gone. Somehow, when it was all over, they were allowed to leave, but I have to stay. 
shouting in this tiny little space, invisible to the world, inaudible to most. But they come. They come with their microphones and cameras. And I try to tell them to get me out of here. But they only ever hear one thing. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. And then they run. Everyone wants to hear what the dead have to say. Until they do. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Happy Halloween! Woo! Yes! Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. That's right. Our made-up holiday is back. <laughs> Spooky and better than ever. And in the right month this year. Yay, we did it. Last year, we were like, May is halfway to Halloween. <laughs> no, it was not. Nope, it's April. <laughs> so. And I just trusted Holly. I was like, cool. <laughs> oh, man, I counted wrong. Sorry. It was still fun, whatever. <laughs> Uh, so Halloween means that it's time for Leslie and I to tell stories specifically aimed at scaring one another. A couple weeks ago, we had a candid discussion about what truly scares us. And in this episode, we're going to exploit those fears for your benefit. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Leslie taught me this time. I think I'm going to be terrified forever. Hooray. So what are you talking about tonight, Leslie? Aliens. Fuck. <laughs> Always aliens. Well, there's truly nothing in this world that I hate more than alien stories. That You can have a hundred of them, and they will scare me a hundred times. So So this one is the Barney and Betty Hill abduction story. (laughs) Yeah. I know a little bit about it, enough that I have turned off this story a couple times, Mm -hmm. and it— I I can't. I hate it so— I hate it so much that technically it is— not my turn to go first, but I told Leslie I had to because once I hear her story, I won't be able to tell mine. I'll have to get you like, like a wet towel. <laughs> I need some oxygen. I can't <laughs> yeah. do much. Thank God it's like daylight right now or I would be totally dead. Um, and I'm going to talk about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Oh. Yeah. My. Yeah, good times. I don't like an asylum. I know you don't. Which is why I picked it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be a scary time. And speaking of scary, I looked in the mirror the other day, and I did not see the haunted images of thousands of dead souls, just my own tired-ass reflection. Oh, yeah, and that means It is a rough day, because it means the black magic we use to stay forever young is running low. Oh, no. We can't have that, can we? Mm -mm. How's your baby's blood chalice? Well, it's low. It's definitely low. I had a feeling. Yeah. I had a feeling that both of us were having the same problem. But Fiends, there is good news in all this despair. You can help us. Tell me. How? That's right. If we cannot get our fountain of eternal youth to turn on, we can also kickstart our immortality with the hauntingly beautiful words of your validation, which you can provide by simply hopping over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment, but it means the whole entire world to this podcast. Ratings and reviews are how we get seen and move forward. Without them, we will surely die. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, 
you can head on over to our Patreon, where for a little monthly donation, we will give you an extra monthly mini-sode. This month, we got drunk and talked about monsters. It was a great time. <laughs> you also have access to our extra monthly patrons-only podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, in which we talk about terrifying bunnies. The Liebes. Mm. <laughs> you will also get discounts to our merch store and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. Also, this week, we have our monthly live-streamed Campfire Stories event starting at 10 o'clock on Friday night. We decided on 10, right? Yeah. Everybody kind of voted that they wanted to keep 10. Um, so this week, we're going to do two truths and a lie again, because it was so much fun last time, yeah. which means we will each tell three short stories, and one of them will be a lie. Ooh. And both we and all of you in attendance have to vote on which one, and we'll see if we can get it right. Um, so I think that's pretty much all my business for right now. Leslie, I think you have other things this week, do you? I feel like I came that I wanted to talk about <laughs> other things, and now I don't remember. You are really mad about a theme song from last week. Oh, gosh, that's right. <laughs> Are you unprepared? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on, I have it. Hold on. Yes, yeah, so I accidentally sang the wrong part of the song to Gilmore Girls, which is one of my favorite shows. And I only realized when I was re-listening to the episode and I went to go sing along with me during the song. And I was like, Leslie. And I felt like I was every listener being just horrible. Like, they just... Their guts were ripped out. So I have to re-sing it now. <laughs> Obviously. Are you ready, Holly? Yeah. Now I'm you ready. might know what this the show is. It's because I sang the wrong part. Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> now my throat is like terrible. <laughs> <laughs> if you're out on the road, feeling lonely and so cold. All you have to do is call my name and I'll be there on the next train where you lead. You don't know it. You don't no, know. No, I don't know it at all. <laughs> but I but I was enjoying your enthusiastic singing. Oh, thank you. You're, you believed in yourself this week and I loved it. <laughs> well, I'll finish it for you, Jill. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz Jill's the only one that's probably upset about this. And Nikki, Nikki and loves Nikki. it. And Nikki, okay. Where you lead? I will follow anywhere that you tell me to. If you need, you need me to be with you. I will follow you where you lead. So good. Leslie was holding her invisible Britney earpiece. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad that wasn't a video for all of you. <laughs> Thank you for that correction. You're welcome. You're welcome. Personally. I think that was, um, oh, and that Drake was shot. Not in a car crash in Degrassi. In Degrassi. <laughs> yeah, they, we they, weren't they, announcing that Drake's been shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Drake was shot. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> because apparently his character was injured with a gunshot. Yes, not a car from accident. a school shooter. Oh, that's a very special episode. It was. It was a very special episode. Huh. All right. Well, thank you for those corrections. You're welcome. I think we all feel much better now. For sure. Oh, and there's merch. Go buy it. <laughs> Buy the merch. <laughs> Buy it. Take your picture in it. Okay, then. On with the show. So, like I said, I'm going to start because I'm too afraid of Leslie's to hear it first. <laughs> uh, so today I'll be talking about one of the most haunted destinations in the United States, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. No, we should not ever call anyone a lunatic. It's dated and horrible and offensive, but all of those words can also be used to describe this building, and that's the name it was given when it was built, 
then subsequently the name it was was reclaimed when it reopened its doors as a museum of arrested decay and haunting ghost mecca. I hate it. I know. <laughs> so when you hear about what happened in that building when it was operational, you won't be super surprised to find out that it was full of ghosts. But first, history. Is it really full of ghosts? Yeah, it's really full of ghosts. I hate it. There's so many ghosts. (laughs) John Ranacastle is going to be like, let's go look at it. I'll be like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) It's in West Virginia, so we would really have to take a trip to go see it. And normally I'm like, yeah, cool, haunted things. I don't think I would go here. Oh, no. It's too scary, and the ghosts are mean. Oh, goodness. Well, at least half of them. One of them's nice. So tell me about it, Holly. You got a little while of history first, so don't worry. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was constructed from 1858 to 1881, which is weird. Yeah. True. And it opened its doors in 1864. Okay. Is that confusing? It sure is. (laughs) Here's what happened. In 1858, the Virginia General Assembly, this takes place in West Virginia, so you're welcome to try and figure out that at your leisure. They authorized groundbreaking for a new facility for the mentally infirm. And they brought on a man named Thomas Story Kirkbride as a consultant, which is a great name. Yeah, we always get some pretty good names We do. But Kirkbride is pretty famous when it comes to asylums because the Kirkbride Asylum is an extremely, extremely specific structure, and that structure is web of nightmares. Oh, good. Yeah. Not in its intention. No, the Kirkbride Asylums just happened to all be gothic-imposing mental health structures that housed horrific things over the years, mostly based on the time in which they were operational, because then the United States was not awesome at mental health care. It still isn't. But 100 years ago, uh, plus, it was it was downright barbaric. Also, every scary movie to ever use an asylum as a setting uses a Kirkbride Asylum. Mm. So if you live in New Jersey, your reference point will be Trenton State Hospital, which was the very first Kirkbride Asylum ever built. Okay. So I'll explain them a little bit. What makes them so special? Kirkbride plan asylums tended to be large and imposing institutional buildings, with the defining feature being their narrow, stepped, linear building footprint, which would include a very enormous, like, menacing front building with the Grand Hall and stuff, and then long, narrow wings that extended outward. And so this resembles the wingspan of a bat, which is already spooky. Yeah. (laughs) You know that shot in, like, every asylum movie where they walk up to the front gates and they look up and it's menacing? Those are Kirkbride asylums. I know. I'm picturing it hardcore right now. (laughs) I don't want to go in. (laughs) Nobody ever does. The standard number of wings for a Kirkbride plan hospital was eight, and they were supposed to accommodate 250 patients. Kirkbride's philosophy behind the staggered wings was to allow individual corridors to open up sunlight and air ventilation through both ends of, like, the halls. He believed, yeah, and he believed that open air aided the healing of the mentally ill because at that time, everyone believed you should treat both the mentally ill and those with tuberculosis basically exactly the same way. They were figuring it out. Ah, yes. And this is why a lot of old mental hospitals also spend time as tuberculosis facilities. Right. Everyone just needed fresh air. That's all. Mm -hmm. Go outside. You'll be fine. Isn't that what they said for, I mean, I I know that it's somewhat true for Mm -hmm. COVID, but that was like a big thing. They're like, you just need fresh air. Just get outside. (laughs) Make sure everything's ventilated. We still go right to that. We're like, oh no, terrifying sickness. Gotta go outside. Yeah. It's airborne, but open up the windows. Yeah. Oh, God. 
<laughs> so each wing, according to Kirkbride's original guideline, would house a separate ward, which would contain its own, quote, comfortably furnished parlor, bathroom, clothing rooms, like a laundry room, an infirmary, as well as a speaking tube and a dumbwaiter. Now, a speaking tube is a tube in the wall with an opening on in, like, the hallway on one floor and then an opening on the next floor. So mm-hmm. using, like... It's like a primitive intercom type thing. Right. Just using acoustics, you could speak to someone upstairs from downstairs and vice versa. Uh, some old houses have them. They're yeah. so cool. Mm-hmm. The furthest wings from the center of the complex of the building were reserved for the, quote, most excitable or most physically dangerous and volatile patients. So you would distance people that were the scariest and have the most manageable closest to the main building. So when you bring new people in, it seems very nice and the further out you go, the more it's just screaming and being chained to a wall. Mm-hmm. Good times. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> Patient rooms were suggested to be spacious with ceilings at least 12 feet high, but they should only be large enough to room a single person. So they're supposed to just be like, you're kept cozy in your one-room little cell. The center complexes of the Kirkbride plan, so the big imposing building, were designed to house administration, kick Kitchens, public and reception areas, so like that's where your family would come, where it looks nice, and apartments for the superintendent's family. Sometimes they also feature like a large clock tower. They're supposed to look very impressive. In addition to the intricate building design, Dr. Kirkbride also advocated, is it doctor? It says doctor here and I didn't say doctor before. (laughs) I'm just going to say Kirkbride also advocated the importance of fertile and spacious landscapes on which the hospitals would be built with views that, quote, if possible, should exhibit life in its active forms. Kirkbride also suggested the hospital grounds be a minimum of 100 acres in size, which means what he really wanted to do was keep these people isolated in the middle of nowhere. They should not have neighbors. No one should bear witness to them or anything that happens there, and no one should be able to hear them. Huh. 73 Kirkbride hospitals were constructed across the United States. 33 of them are still around. You can visit them. Some of them are colleges now, which is haunting. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that every single one of them devolved into a nightmarish snake pit, but I am saying that every nightmarish snake pit was one of them. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) The term snake pit uh, doesn't involve actual snakes in this term. (laughs) It's for, like, the scary asylum experience. Uh Some of them also have a charming system of tunnels under the buildings that were originally designed for staff to be able to travel from building to building away from the elements, but were mostly used to cart out bodies without alerting the public to the frequency at which this task was carried out. So, back to the history. West Virginia clears construction for an enormous imposing mental hospital, and things kick off nicely. A structure of that size at that point in time is absolutely going to take a while to construct. Of course, years. But then the Civil War breaks out and construction has to stop. But a large portion of the hospital was already finished at this point. And as I mentioned a second ago, the whole thing is a radiating system of wings designed to isolate people by degrees. So the hospital was able to open before it was even finished. That's why there's the big like, it took this long to build, but it opened in the middle. Which was a good thing because the struggle to allocate funds to finish the hospital went on for a couple of years. But during this time, and carrying on a few years later, when construction had resumed, the hospital housed quite a few Civil War soldiers who had seen their fair share of horrors on the battlefield and did not come home the same as when they left. The Union Army also seized part of the grounds as a place for their encampments. 
And so then the, quote, West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, which is what they were calling it for that brief period of time, was christened by war, violence, and loss. During the final years of its construction, it was decided that the hospital would also be fully self-sustaining. So an extensive garden, greenhouse, and dairy were added on so that the patients could produce their own food, which seems nice until you consider it's because they don't want the public coming in or out. Mm. The more self-sufficient they make it, the less likely people are to come and see anything. Okay. By 1881, when construction was finally finished on the hospital, which was designed, I will remind you again, to house 250 people in solitude, was housing more than 700 patients. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's quite a bit more than it was designed for, in case you're keeping track. Which means that rooms designed for one person now housed at least three. This was partially because there weren't many facilities designed to treat mental health back then. There just were few asylums. But also, it was because people were being institutionalized for next to nothing at that point in time. At a far greater rate. The hospital had become a dumping ground for the unwanted and undesirable. The first logbook used at the hospital lists reasons for patient admission and includes causes like grief, congestion of the brain, feebleness of intellect, seduction, and novel reading. Oh, I love the novel reading one. <laughs> Don't read books. Yeah. Especially if you're a lady. Yeah. Probably only if you're a lady because most of the patients in these places back then were women. Right. And women are terrifying ghosts. So how were those original patients treated? <laughs> well, as well as I guess could be expected back then. At this time, the treatment for, the men for mental illness really still walks the line between science and weird magic, if you ask me. I won't get into the history of mental health care today too much because I'm here to scare Leslie with some ghosts, but I promise that it will happen in its own episode because there is a lot to be said. And both of us have a lot to say about that. But basically, the patients would simply be locked away and left to their own devices most of the time. The goal of mental health care at that point was for, and for a very long time after it, was basically to just keep people sedated and in one place. They didn't want to help them. They just wanted to kind of control them. Right, take them off the streets mm -hmm. and place them somewhere. Yep, somewhere isolated in the middle of 100 acres where you never have to think about them again and they can grow their own food. Yeah. And they're just gone. I mean, it sounds like a nice retreat. Like, and it's designed to sound like a nice retreat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But then you, if you give it like a little harder thought, you're like, oh, no. It was designed so no one from the outside had to come in. Right. Right. Ugh. Methods employed in those early days were things like bloodletting because, yes, even in Civil War times, we loved some blood. <laughs> Not just bloodletting, but also purgatives. So if blood loss didn't calm you down, doctors would make you vomit or lose your bowels until the demons came out of one end or the other. Yeah, that makes sense. I always feel so much better after I throw up. Mm -hmm. Same. Or after a forced enema every hour yeah. for a few days. Yeah. Always, always better. Yeah. We'll talk about Dr. Kellogg <laughs> at another point in time. Boy, did he love an enema. <laughs> Is it the same Kellogg? Yeah. The yeah. cereal Kellogg? Yeah. He invented cornflakes because they were like cereal that went moldy. It yeah, like, well, and there was no taste, so you mm -hmm. couldn't, because you shouldn't enjoy anything. No, absolutely not. That yeah, was watch, the same thing with Graham. Oh, really? Yeah. They were like buddies. Watch The Road to Wellville. It's a great movie. We'll mm -hmm. talk about Dr. Kellogg at another time. Okay. He it's is, also on Drunk History. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> we, we will make sure to cover him. That will be a very fun episode. <laughs> yeah. 
but this stuff isn't fun. Yeah, make, making patients have hourly enemas is like a terrible thing. Mm. Hydrotherapy was also very popular at this point in time, and this involved putting the patient in a locked bathtub. I'm sure you will have seen these again in scary movies about asylums. And the water that was put into them was either boiling hot or ice cold, and the patient would be left in there for extended periods of time, sometimes whole days on end. And mind you, they were not allowed to relieve to leave the tub to relieve themselves. So this was just a large, disgusting bowl of human soup and suffering. Oh. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they would think shitting in a tub was good for you, but that's what happened. They just didn't care. Nope, they did not. Again, this they thought like, well, this will make them stop fighting me. I just put you in a tub of ice water for 36 hours. Right. Maybe you'll stay in your room for a little while longer now. Restraints were often used as well. The straitjacket was already common by this point, having been invented in the mid-1700s. And sometimes they were left on patients nearly constantly to make them more manageable for the staff. There were chairs designed to restrain every part of the human body, cribs where fully grown patients were kept strapped in so they would spend all of their time immobilized with, again, no bathroom breaks. Violence would always be met with violence, and patients that acted out could expect to be beaten or punished by losing privileges or meals. Diet was also a means of control, so those who were particularly violent or stubborn might be put on a liquid diet or a very limited diet to keep them controllable, a.k.a. malnourished and very weak. Mm. All of these treatments merely made the patients broken down and easier to pass the days with. The goal wasn't helping them back then. And if you were put in a psychiatric hospital, it was most likely because no one else would care for you at this time. And no one was going to inquire about their treatment because they had just shuffled them off and then were done. This is why asylums needed their space, like I said, because if someone were to, I don't know, be their neighbor and stumbled upon someone outside in a tub of ice screaming and shitting themselves, they probably would never recover from that image. Yeah. So best to keep them out on the farm. One would hope that as time passed, mental health treatments would get better. And eventually they did, kind of, but not before getting worse for a while, like a long while. (laughs) Not only worse, but far more common. In 1913, the hospital was renamed Weston State Hospital, and it stayed that way until it reopens as, like, a paranormal uh, museum and stuff, but we're going to call it Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum because that's what it's called now, just so you know. And they added, um, in 1913, a gas well, so now they were in charge of their own gas. They didn't have to pay gas bills or have people come out for maintenance. By 1938, the hospital had added... um, a women's ward, a children's ward, and a tuberculosis building because tuberculosis always sneaks in there. Mm -hmm. But mind you, the women and children were just sectioned off using existing parts of the building. This did not alleviate the crowding. It just separated the enormous existing population, which by this time had grown to 1,661 people. Wow. Hmm? Even with the TB patients, who, by the way, did not belong there in any way, but we're also suffering horrific fates of their own in their very own new building, this is still massively overcrowded. Mm -hmm. New treatments had been added into the mix, including electroshock therapy, which does still exist today, but in a far more humane manner. They also employed insulin shock therapy, which most certainly does not exist today. This is where patients patients are put into an insulin-induced coma, which is something that if you're a diabetic, you're probably terrified of. And as you can imagine, the side effects of this are pretty grim and awful. In the late 30s, the hospital suffered a terrible fire, which was set by a patient 
And then in the mid-40s, it was exposed for the overcrowding and appalling conditions. And so a strange solution was brought in. Mm. A man named Dr. Walter Freeman stepped in. Perhaps you have heard me talk about him before. Mm -hmm. I hate him very much. (laughs) Dr. Freeman invented the transorbital lobotomy, otherwise known as the ice pick lobotomy. And here's how that procedure goes. An excitable patient is brought in and strapped down to the table. They are given enough electroshock therapy to induce a seizure, and then they will black out. Once they are unconscious, Dr. Freeman would take a long, thin pick, and yes, at first, it was the ice pick he pulled off of his own kitchen table, insert it into the corner of the patient's eye, like right in the socket where your tear duct is, and then one at a time, he would hammer it into their brain. This severs the brain's frontal cortex and reduces the person mentally into a confused toddler. Dr. Freeman, however, saw this as a magical cure-all and started out by giving giving them to housewives with too many opinions. Mm -hmm. Mostly it was women who were too mouthy, so we had to make sure they were incapacitated forever. Good job. People still had babies with those women. wonder how that happened. So Dr. Freeman saw this as a magical cure-all, as I said. And after the housewives, he moved to the mentally ill. Um, The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum brought in Dr. Freeman to reduce their amount of patients by reducing them to a fraction of their former selves and then sending them home, saying they had been cured. Well, most of them. Some of them didn't make it out of the procedure alive, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I hate this man, too. I hate him so much. And um, we can do a patrons-only episode, maybe even this month, on Dr. Freeman because there's a ton to say about him, and I have a lot of opinions about him. So if you're a patron and you want to hear more about Dr. Freeman, that might, that might happen. Also, some of, the, some of the patients that this was done to in order to send them home or people that came there for this procedure ended up staying at the hospital because they needed constant care after that. Right. You, you couldn't send them home. They were suddenly a giant infant. And what do you do with a giant infant? Well, you lock them in a crib all day and just ignore the brain damage you decided to give them. It's so wild. Super wild. Happened to the Kennedy's youngest daughter, Rose. Really? Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. I did know that. Yep. Now, you might think that this kind of guy was like a very sciencey, altruistic nerd who thought he was doing good, because a lot of people do bad when they think they're doing good. But here is where you could be wrong. Dr. Freeman was a showman. He performed these operations for anyone whose family asked them with no screening process for $25 a pop, sometimes on children as young as four. Jesus Christ. And sometimes in a matter of seconds in front of a cheering crowd with an ice pick in each hand. It is a documented fact that in 1952, Dr. Freeman alone performed 228 lobotomies in a two-week span in West Virginia in a thing he called Operation Ice Pick. By that time, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum had a whopping 2,400 patients. This solution seemed quick and easy, but of course it wasn't. Many families did not want to care for their adults, as I said, and they just brought them right back. So it stayed as crowded as ever. And these people would not be able to communicate feed themselves, or um, they were no longer toilet trained, for lack of a better terminology. Yeah. So, completely dependent on caretakers. The hospital became a fetid cesspit, obviously. Qualified staff no longer wanted to work there, and so unqualified orderlies and keepers were hired who often resorted to violence and humiliation due to their inexperience and overexposure, and therefore insensitivity to an extremely overwhelming and terrifying situation. What these people did was bad, but they were also put in, like, the most impossible situation in the world. 
Staff preferred to keep the patients naked and chained down because they would only soil the clothes they put on them. So why put any clothes on them? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I'm like imagining all the pictures, especially from the yeah, one episode that we did. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is very similar. The diminished assets in a sanely large, pop, large population also meant that no one had enough to eat and the food they did have was frequently not very good or gone bad. Abuse, both physical and sexual, was a daily occurrence and, of course, went unnoticed. And just in case you think it was only genuinely mentally ill folks, stressed out housewives, disabled children, and soldiers who were sent there, let me add this into the mix. There were also prisoners. That's right. If you murdered a bunch of people and were dubbed criminally insane, you could be committed to a place like the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. And so there were violent criminals peppered into this mix on a regular basis. A lot of people, both patient and staff, were admitted, but never came out. Mm. In the 1960s, a morgue and graveyard were also added, so the deaths on the premises were not handled by state medical examiners. Uh, Well, that's smart. Mm -hmm. Can you have, can you, like, handle your own gas now, or is that illegal? I think that's illegal now. I don't Mm. know. This was, like, a gas well, I guess, so they had, like, I I didn't look up the full basics on that but i can't imagine it's legal you need a gas company to do your gas now. that's what i mean they don't let you do anything you can't just grid. be like i'm on my own land i'll drill for my own gas i know <laughs> yeah and they like because they won't even let you collect it's technically illegal to collect rainwater either the laws existed and they didn't care when it came to these people yeah. or they didn't exist yet I'm not right. quite sure which one it is i would think they just didn't exist yeah. yet so basically this island of horror was completely unchecked and it seemed like the general public liked it that way By the 1980s, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum had managed to reduce its population, but still held on to its barbaric practices. The 1980s! Remember that was not that long ago! When it was investigated, eventually, in 1986, the government found that patients that couldn't be controlled were being kept naked in cages in common areas. Cages! This is the mid-80s! And it remained open until 1994! Jesus. Mm -hmm. Remember 1994? Most of you probably do. In that time, a great many hopeless patients had chosen to take their own lives rather than continue on living there. And with some of them, their bodies wouldn't be discovered for days and days. So needless to say, there are a lot of ghosts on those crowds. Oh, no. pain and suffering that (laughs) occurred behind those walls was immeasurable. And so I'm going to tell you about a few of them. You don't need to. I'm going to. First, if you go on a ghost hunting adventure at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic I Asylum, won't. be warned. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> you will not. Most people that go sustain at least a minor injury. One of the first things people claim to notice is the sharp sting of fingernails on their skin. Ew. Yeah. But the spirits will not do this to a group of people. When ghost hunting at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, you are allowed to wander around freely. And often, people will be, will be distracted by all the medical equipment that is still there. So all the old you. equipment, yeah. I'd be like, look <laughs> at that. All the old equipment is still there. There's gurneys and wheelchairs just chilling in hallways and any kind of myriad terrifying things you can imagine. They're all still there. Terrifying wheelchairs. Yeah. <laughs> so you wander off to look at a gurney and a tray or something, and you find yourself alone, which is when you might feel the scratches. Ew. Or Ew. the giggling may no. start. No, not the giggling. Yes, the giggling. <laughs> Many guests report hearing the sounds of a grown man giggling quietly. Oh, that's that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I don't know that any giggling is okay. But a grown-ass man is the worst. <laughs> oh, my God. 
giggling is followed by heavy footsteps. Nope. The combination is unnerving, and so the hair on the back of your neck will begin to stand up. And you'll look around to see if anyone else is there. But the footfalls and the giggling will stop for a moment, and a sense of safety will return. It won't, though. But not for long. (laughs) From out of nowhere, you might then hear one of several things. It could be high-pitched screaming and the sound of human limbs and heavy metal chains being dragged across the floor. It could be a low and sustained wailing, followed by the crunch of metal on a human skull. It could be a woman's panic shrieks for help, followed by the sickening thuds and gurgles. Or it could be the gentle laughter of a child. (sighs) (laughs) I started picturing, like, (laughs) Ebenezer Scrooge or, like, one of the, like, Marley. Marley. Oh, gosh, giggling. I hate giggling. I know. (laughs) Who are these spirits? I'll tell you. In the late 50s, a nurse went on duty one evening and was never seen again. For two months, they looked for the missing woman, even though her car remained in the parking lot. Authorities figured that she had been abducted in the parking lot. Two months after the night she went missing, her remains were discovered in the hospital at the base of a stairwell. The conditions in the hospital were such that no one noticed the appearance or smell of a human corpse. Oh, my God. They say she was attacked by three patients who raped her and beat her to death. Now, if you find yourself in the vicinity of that stairwell alone, you may hear her reliving the incident for all eternity, screaming for help, clawing at the cement floor while three men take her life. This incident is documented and absolutely happened. Another ghost you might encounter in the halls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is that of a murderer only known as Slewfoot. Slewfoot? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's it's a, a cute name. It's a devil thing. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it means like the, the goat foot. Like, oh, I, yeah. I'm not sure oh, though. Yeah. Uh-huh. Slewfoot was sent to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum as an alternative to prison as his crimes were so depraved it was said that no sane person would have dared commit them. Slewfoot was a great hulking man who continued to take lives once behind the walls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and their barbaric treatment of him only served to make him angrier. Mm. Now, Slewfoot haunts his old room, and if you are unlucky enough to stumble upon it, you will first hear a loud burst of laughter, and then the door will shut behind you. After that, you might want to try to get out as quickly as possible, But you'll find it difficult because suddenly the air in the room will become thick and difficult to pass through your lungs. It will feel almost like drowning very slowly in the open air or being strangled by invisible pressure. Making sounds other than gasps become impossible. And so you will not even be able to call out for help. But you're not alone. You will have plenty of time to panic as the air goes from thin and pleasant to thick as molasses, all while Slewfoot looks on, laughing. Ew. Ew. Yep. People don't go there. (laughs) Eventually, if you're lucky, he will release the pressure and then laugh at your misfortune, ensuring you never return to his space again. Yeah, I won't even go now. But wait, there's more. (sighs) Some visitors choose to be locked in an isolation cell in an attempt to contact a spirit, which is a very bad call. Remember... What do you think went on in those cells, which often contained a restrained, terrified person for weeks on end, alone? Panic. Violent, animalistic panic. And if you choose to enter this space, that is what you feel. A whirlwind of uneasy emotions and the babbling of human terror. 
The room is tense, and from the walls you will hear scratching and thumping that gets closer and closer until you find welts raising on your own skin and terrified screeches ringing in your ears. If you choose to swim in a sea of human suffering, do not expect it to be without sharks. Most people who emerge from these cells come out covered in bruises and scratches. The fuck? Why is this this something people can do? Yeah. You, like, pay extra for it? Yeah. People people are weird. I understand. If you choose to spend the night in the trans Allegheny no. Lunatic oh, Asylum, don't. because please, you can, please don't. <laughs> you will encounter the wandering spirits of many poor souls, some of whom continue to wander the halls, vacant eyes and open mouths, not even realizing they are dead. And those are the more pleasant of the bunch. Yeah, those some, guys sound fine. They're just walking around. <laughs> some bear the vestiges of an untimely death by suicide, such as a noose made of bed sheets. but I would just feel bad for that guy. Oh, man. If you stay awake long enough, and who doesn't when they are in the most terrifying place in the world, you might see the resident shadow creature who is said to wander the halls in the dead of the night, creeping over surfaces and hiding in corners like a humanoid spider made of smoke and shadow. Ew. (laughs) Even I hate that one. So it's just like a blob of, like, bad energy? No, it's like Slender Man shapes, and it kind of creeps over the walls. Oh, Holly! <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, long and sticks Ew, in. you don't need to! <laughs> don't, like, move your body! They can't see, just you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't know who this is. <laughs> they think he's otherworldly. <laughs> but we know it will cover you in ice-cold panic. <laughs> That's horrible. I feel it. I feel him on me. <laughs> He's not here. <laughs> the shadow creature appears to some guests, but not all, hanging ominously overhead and stealing their sense of safety and never leaving their memories. No. <laughs> but those are for guests that stay awake, right? Yeah. Usually- I would just be like, good night. <laughs> <laughs> go sleep with this guy with the bed sheet around his neck. He seems nice. He looks like he just had a bad day. (laughs) Maybe we could have a talk. (laughs) If one left. Lastly, we have the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum's most famous ghost, a little girl named Lily. Hmm. Lily's mother was a young woman of privilege from England who found herself in a situation. Now, this was in the 1920s, so young girls did not get pregnant. And naturally, her parents... I thought she was just caught in a library reading a novel. <laughs> well, that would, that would bring her there, yeah. too. <laughs> but naturally, her parents brought her to another country, to an asylum, pregnant, to tell her that she's going to give birth there, away from the prying eyes of their social circle. Mm-hmm. The next day, the staff told the young woman that her parents had died in an automobile accident. They had not. What? Yeah, they're awful. They chose to dump off this young woman and leave her and her eventual infant in the hospital indefinitely, (gasps) where they would no longer burden them with a sullied reputation. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's terrible. The young woman eventually gave birth to a little girl named Lily, but resented her child and circumstances so greatly that she did not pay much attention to her. The staff, however, loved Lily and doted on her. Unfortunately, at the age of nine, Lily came down with pneumonia and passed away. Her room is the only cherry bright yellow room in the facility, and it's still yellow. And it was kept empty mostly because they chose to, like, remember her. She was, like, the one person anyone there ever liked. They loved her, and she died. So the room is still yellow, and Lily is still in there. 
Now the room is filled with tributes left by visitors, which only looks terrifying. Yeah. Just toys and balls and snacks are like all over the floor. And in one corner, there is a little music box, which is her favorite thing. Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? Lily isn't like the other ghosts, however, because Lily talks. And the toys have been set out in the room so that Lily will play. Sometimes if you roll a ball slowly across the floor, Lily will roll it back. (laughs) Sometimes if you call for her, she'll wind up the music box and let it play. And sometimes if you leave her something, she will say thank you in a quiet and airy little voice. And then you will hear her tiny feet scurrying away with her new treasure. (laughs) Scurrying away. Poor little baby. According, but like, shouldn't people be helping to like send them off? Like, the, isn't it that they're stuck in this dimension? I, I guess there's know. different beliefs, right? I don't know, but the staff there still are like ferociously protective of her. Like, if ghost mm-hmm. hunters come in and they try to, because you know, all those ghost shows, they like try to provoke yeah. ghosts. If they do that with her, they get kicked out. They're not yeah. allowed to do that in in Lily's room. They're not allowed to be an asshole to her. You can only go in if you're nice, right? Oh. According to the website America's Most Haunted in an article by a man named Eric Olson, quote, paranormal investigator Aaron Sulser has investigated the asylum a dozen times. He claims one of Lily's favorite games involves the music box and a flashlight. During a recent session, Aaron asked Lily if she remembered him, and if so, to please make herself known. He placed flashlights in different areas of the room set up so that a slight twist on the top would turn them on or off. Aaron wound the music box and began asking questions. A flashlight turned on, indicating Lily was there. As the music slowed, the flashlight dimmed, only to return to full brightness when the music box was wound again. This occurred several times throughout the session. When Aaron asked if Lily was making it happen, he got a positive response. The correlation between the music box and the flashlight was so consistent that Aaron had no doubt Lily was manipulating it. So those are all the ghosts. And all the horrible history of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. That's so gross. I don't know why anybody goes to it. I don't know why people find that fun. (laughs) Well, the bottom floor is also still a museum. So you can take an educational tour where they'll be like, here are some of the old practices and here are artifacts we found there. But then you can also do the weird overnight stuff. No. It's kind of like Eastern State in that way. Yeah. Except for worse. So. (laughs) I did that um, that Sleep No More in New York City. That's theater. I know, but and it was really cool, but it's six floors in, like, a abandoned building. I can't be by myself. Well, that's the thing. So at one point, when you go in, you go in with um, – they, they break you up into different groups that go – that start. Mm-hmm. And you have – so if you are, like, the first group, which I ended up being, you could be in there for an entire three hours. But then there's, like, other groups that go in at different times. So you might not be in there as long. Uh-huh. But you still can do whatever. So when I went in, they were just all starting. And what I didn't realize is, is like, you're supposed to find, like, a actor and follow their story. Oh. And so you can kind of stay with them. Mm-hmm. But when I walked in, I got very jumbled and it was by myself too. Like I like John went in with another group. Oh, I hate that. I did. I didn't I was like, oh no. But but you you just kind of go and you're just like you're in this mode. You put a mask on and you're like, cool. <gasps> like you just you just get into it. And uh anyway, so I went, everybody went one way, and I think me and maybe somebody else went a different way. And it was the scariest thing for at the beginning because I went up 
where like nothing was happening. Like there weren't really any other actors mm-hmm. around. And I just like found myself on a really creepy floor of like, like kind of looks like an insane asylum. Like it was, Ugh. there was showers and, and beds and it was all empty. I found myself up there again another time and there was like a nurse doing something and like other stuff. But John said that like you could see like he got up there and there were people like uncomfortably like scrubbing themselves. Ew. But when I went up there, it was all just silent. And it was the scariest thing. And then all you see is the workers that are have to stay in a corner and they're really only there if you need help. Oh, my God. And so they can't talk to you. So I that was, like, horrifying. Oh, I like, hate it. There was just people standing in a dark corner Ugh. that couldn't move. I don't like that at all. And I was like, what, where have I come to? <laughs> <laughs> this is where I die. Yeah. <laughs> I ran down those steps so fast. I got I, down. I was like. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. And then I found where everybody was. They were, like, in a room, and there were people dancing. And I was like, well, this is nice. I want to be here. <laughs> Take me to the bar. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> yeah. All right. Oh. You want to hear about some aliens? <sighs> no, but okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to be so uncomfortable. Okay. Well, so like I said, my story today is about the Barney and Betty Hill abduction. <sighs> that happened in 1961. And this is, like, the staple. So before this point, from some of my research, it seems like any other alien abduction stories or, like, alien encounters, really, have all been kind of pleasant. Like, they just saw, like, a being that seemed kind of weird. Almost like a ghost. Like, you just saw, like, a friendly thing that then, like, went off. These are not friendly. Well, they might be. They're just scientists, maybe. We'll see. (laughs) We're not going to see. I don't like them. Yeah. So Barney and Betty Hill sat in a booth at a New England diner drinking freshly brewed cups of coffee. That's nice. It was late around 10 p.m. on September 19th, 1961. They were driving back from their long overdue honeymoon through Niagara Falls in Toronto. The biracial couple had been happily married for 16 months, but jobs and life kept filling up their calendars. Barney was an over... Just growling. I already hate it so much. Barney was an overnight shift postal worker who drove nearly two hours to and from work every day. And Betty was a state social worker. In their limited spare time, both were active members in their church and community, focusing mainly on civil rights issues. Both were involved in the NAACP. Barney was an officer of Portsmouth's NAACP a member of New Hampshire's Advisory Board Civil Rights Commission, and he was on the board of directors of Rockingham Poverty Program. She's like a really good guy. Yep, and so was Betty. She was also involved in the NAACP, was also the United Nations envoy to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Ugh. So, like, they were just, like, staples. They Those they were like respected and hardworking within their community. Upstanding citizens. They were even invited to Lyndon Johnson's presidential inauguration for their— civil rights work, but all this work kept them busy and left them little time for themselves. But like, yeah, so the town knew them. They, they were smart individuals. These are not crazy people. They're not crazy people. And like, and I'll put a picture up in our stories and they're like, they're just a normal, nice looking couple, you know, they thought their, the biggest challenge they were going to have to live through was the fact that they were like a biracial couple. Little did they know. Little did they know. So they had very little time for themselves until the day Barney said, let's just go. And the two packed their bags, hopped in the car, waved goodbye to their sweet little home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and drove to Canada. Do not go. (laughs) 
Also, do you remember, like, I don't know if you ever went to Canada, but Mm-mm. you didn't, like, you used to not need a passport. That was nice. I want to go to Canada. Everyone seems nice. It was fun. We should go. Okay. They had a lovely three-day vacation together, but Barney had to get back to his job at the post office, and Betty had a small stack of child welfare cases she needed to attend to. Angels. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Um, and also, this is where there's different thoughts here. Um, when they left on their trip, one mentions that they only had, like, $70 in their pocket. Not that they were, like, poor, but they just, like, it was very spontaneous when they left. So some think, like, they may have also had to, like, end their trip early and come back. And so there was just, there could have been, like, stress of them being, like, we need to get back. We just don't, we either don't have enough money or they may have even tried to extend their trip in Canada but maybe couldn't understand directions as well because of it being in French a lot. So, like, they may have just decided, like, found themselves back in the States and were like, let's just go home. So there's a couple different versions of that that I'm not sure. But either way, they were now headed home and they knew where they were. Barney knew they were only about four to five hours away from home. So after they visited the bathrooms, finished their coffees, and paid the bill, they were homebound. They also had their dog with them, Delcy. It was like a little no. uh, doction. <laughs> it was about 10.30 p.m. now, and they were just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, on U.S. Route 3. Betty was listening to the radio and thinking about the past three days while looking out the passenger side window at a beautiful night sky. There was a hurricane heading their way, but they were pretty far ahead of it, so at this point the night was still pretty clear and the stars were really bright. There was a large bright star near the moon. The hills would later learn that this was planet Jupiter. Betty sat up in the car and all her attention was now on a bright star she had been staring at. It was just below the moon in Jupiter and it looked as though it was moving. But she thought that it was just like a trick of the lights. Then the movement was more noticeable. It's not a trick, Betty. It was probably just a plane, she thought. But she quickly dismissed this and decided that she was seeing a falling star. Only it moved upward. She started narrating to Barney what she was seeing. A few moments later, Betty's voice began to sound nervous, and she told Barney the star or plane or light was moving erratically and was getting bigger and brighter and closer. She told Barney to pull over so they could get a look. And also their, like, little dog, Delcy, needed to to poop. Drive like hell. Delcy can poop in the car. You'll live. (laughs) Barney saw a sign for a picnic area just south of Twin Mountain and decided that would be a good place to stop, stretch the legs, walk the dog, and see what Betty was looking at. (laughs) Barney was a World War II vet and had grown increasingly interested in plane watching, so he always had a pair of binoculars in his car, but also they were just sightseeing, too, on vacation, so they're bound to have them. Also, my grandpa always had binoculars in his car, so I didn't find this weird. Betty took the binoculars, looked out, got a closer look, and Barney was sure it was either a plane or possibly even a satellite that went off course. Though the couple both felt like the light was following them, but who knows, it could have been the movement of their car causing this illusion, too. It wasn't. As Betty peered through the binoculars, the white light wasn't just a light at all. It was an object. And it was spinning. She was no rocket scientist, but she knew she wasn't looking at a star, and based on the satellites she saw in the news, this also did not look like what had just been recently set up to space. Barney, who had, who has also been noted to have an IQ of 140, which- That's Mensa. Yeah, which 100 is usually the average, and anything over 140 is being high or genius level. He looked through the binoculars as well, but before he even put them on, he knew Betty was right. However, being a pragmatic man, Barney wanted to make sure, make sense of what was happening. 
After a few moments, the dog was ready to get back in the car, and the couple decided to just continue on their way. They were like, it's whatever. There's something happening. Let's just, let's just get home. They hopped back on Route 3, and while driving, Betty continued to keep her eyes on the light. This wasn't difficult to do, though, because the object was clearly following them now. No! Oh, my God. Drive so fast. Drive away. The object then passed above a restaurant in Signal Tower on top of the Canyon Mountain and came out near the old man of the mountain. At this point, this is where they can estimate the size of the craft. Figuring out that the length of the granite cliff profile of the old man on the mountain was about 40 feet long, the object was at least one and a half times that length. (gasps) The object was moving erratically again and was more clearly spinning. Barney and Betty were now a mile south of Indian Head, New Hampshire. The object, which they were feeling a bit more confident was an alien spacecraft now, was now hovering about 100 feet above the couple's vehicle, causing Barney to abruptly stop in the middle of the highway. The couple recalls how silent and large the craft was. Oh, why didn't they pull into that restaurant? Well, because they were just on the highway. Damn it. Yeah. Barney would say the craft reminded him of a huge pancake. This would be like... Now so again, like the, the staple, yeah. And this is, like I said, the kind of standard UFO now we always see. The flying see. saucer. Mm-hmm. Barney still had his binoculars around his neck, but he also had a pistol in the glove compartment. He grabbed the pistol and stepped out of the car. Oh, he shit. didn't know what else to do. Barney. As he peered through his binoculars, he could see 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of the craft's window, looking right at him. No! They were wearing what looked like Glossy black uniforms and black caps. Put hats on their giant onion heads. All but one of the beings turned in unison to a panel on the wall that looked like it had a bunch of levers and buttons on it. The one remaining figure just stared at Barney. Fuck him! Oh, God. A moment later, the figure was communicating to Barney to put down the binoculars and stay where you are. Barney kind of snapped out of it for a second and realized that they were in trouble, and he ran back to the car and told Betty they needed to get out of there before they were captured. Go! They sped off, but at some point, Betty and Barney heard a rhythmic series of beeping sounds coming from their trunk that then began to pulsate through their bodies. That's when they began to feel drowsy and eventually lost consciousness. No! A second set of rhythmic beeping began, and the tingling feeling once again coursed through their bodies, returning them to full consciousness. Barney and Betty were still in their car. There in the back seat uh, was their dog, but they were driving and were 35 miles further south than they remember. They were also about two hours further behind their schedule than Barney had calculated. Their memory was a bit foggy. Both of them remembered needing to make an unplanned turn at a roadblock, but also remember seeing a fiery orb. They discussed the the possibility of the events leading up to their lost time could have all been a dream. Maybe they pulled over and fell asleep and got in the car. But the two, still feeling foggy, definitely remembered seeing this UFO, like they had the exact same thoughts, and what the beings looked like inside. Nearing home, Barney checked his wristwatch for the time and noticed that it wasn't working and that it had stopped a few hours before. He told Betty, who also looked at her watch, and saw that her clock had also stopped. Weird. At least they were home. They arrived home to their house in Portsmouth, feeling still foggy and not sure how they got home at so late. But they just wanted to go to bed and decided to figure out things in, in the morning. Where's the dog? Dog was still there. Okay. Dog's there. The next morning, the couple woke up 
with still no recollection of the lost time and foggy sense of what happened. However, Barney's shoes had been scuffed, the strap to his binoculars had been torn, Betty's dress had been torn, and both of their watchers would never work again. Betty felt compelled to leave their luggage by the door and not put it away. They showered several times, just feeling, like, contaminated. Because their butts probably hurt. Barney was compelled to check his genitalia, but saw nothing wrong. I'm in trouble. (laughs) Check my dick. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And they both just felt violated. Ugh. Maybe because Betty's sister had said she had saw a UFO a few years earlier, Betty and Barney were a little quicker to jump to the extraterrestrial train. So I'm going to mention that just in case because her sister did say that she thought she saw something weird once before. Betty and Barney tried to reconstruct the chronology of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home, but immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories became incomplete and fragmented. Betty ended up filing a report to the Air Force and was also concerned about radiation. Oh, yeah. Though she did leave out some details for fear of sounding eccentric. So Major Paul W. Henderson phoned her right back, because they always have to, and he thought that maybe they just saw, like, the planet Jupiter. But she was like, no, like, I know that I saw the moon, I saw Jupiter, but there was this other light, and, like, Jupiter's not following my car. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it? Yeah. (laughs) But he was was certain that it was some sort of optical illusion causing something, and they were driving late at night. This is always a big point of contention for people. Like, they were driving so late at night, maybe, like, Maybe they did pull, they had to pull over several times because of the dog. Maybe like they fell asleep one time and they had like a shared dream of some sort, you know, a shared illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Henderson filed their report with the Project Blue Book. Oh. Yeah. What's that? Oh, that's like the whole alien section of the government. I don't Project know about Blue that because I hate it and oh, I yeah. won't. It's a whole thing. I won't read about yeah. it. <laughs> we could do a Patriot episode on that and we you can do it. <laughs> they had a TV show and everything. Yeah. I stayed away from that TV show. <laughs> so, trying to piece together what happened, Betty spent hours in the library reading about the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which is NICAP, a civilian UF, UFO group. She wrote to the author of one of the books, Donald E. Keyhole, relating the full story as she could remember. He passed her letter to Walter Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. Webb came by for a six-hour interview. He fully believes the Hills are telling the truth, They that they saw something and they may have had an experience that either the aliens have tried to erase from their brains or that the Hills are choosing to forget. Both parties thought that hypnosis may be beneficial. No, 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 no. And at this point, too, like, Barney is a bit more like, well, I think Betty needs this. Like, he's, like, worried for her. Oh, God. So 10 days after the incident, Betty began to have nightmares about what really happened that night. In her dreams, her and Barney were stopped at a roadblock and human figures began to swarm the car. Betty felt herself start to lose consciousness but struggled to stay awake. They were pulled out of the car, and she could now see that the men had grayish skin and were wearing dark black suits, dark blue suits, and a matching hat that reminded her of, like, a marine cap. She looked to her husband, who who was in some sort of trance and looked as though he was sleepwalking. They were led on to the spacecraft. Once inside, Barney and Betty were separated. She protested and was told telepathically by a man she called the leader that if she and Barney were examined together, it would take 
much longer to conduct. She felt like she didn't have much choice anyway, and the two of them were taken into separate rooms. I don't give a shit about your time, you fucking gray motherfucker. I know. I thought that was like a weird thing. She was it's like, going to take us more time. Yeah. <laughs> don't care. So now Betty had really begun to look at the beings. They were only about five feet tall with They're black hair. Suspiciously. They have the hair? Dark eyes. Ew. Prominent noses and blue lips. They were definitely not human. Ah! Betty then dreamt that a new man, similar to the others, entered to conduct her exam with the leader. Betty claimed this new man, the examiner, uh, or yeah, he she called him the examiner and said that he had a pleasant, calm manner. Though the leader and the examiner spoke to her in English, the examiner's command in the language seemed imperfect and she had difficulty understanding him. The examiner told Betty that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. He seated her on a chair, and a bright light was shown on her. The man cut off a lock of her Betty's hair. He examined her eyes, her ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He saved trimmings from her fingernails. After examining her legs and feet, the man used a dull knife, similar to a letter opener, to scrape some of her skin into what resembled cellophane. He then tested her nervous system, and he thrust the needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain. Of course it did. Whereupon the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes, and the pain vanished. Oh, that was nice, I guess. That was nice, right? Um, There was also, I found another quote of her, like, remembering some of these, like, in her testimonies. (laughs) She says, So then they roll me over on my back, and the examiner has a long needle in his hand. And I see the needle, uh, and it's bigger than any needle that I've ever seen. Uh, it go, Betty. In your butt. <laughs> Ooh, okay, so the examiner left the room, and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols that the leader said she could take home with her, which was cool, I guess. <laughs> she also asked from where he came, and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. In Betty's dream account, the men began a escorting the hills from the ship with when a disagreement broke out. The leader then informed Betty that she couldn't keep the book, stating that they had decided that the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. They were like, maybe you shouldn't remember this. We're going to take that. <laughs> Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events. <laughs> That's, you're goddamn right. I can't oh. wait for you to see the photo of her, because you're going to be like this like little lady being like, I'm going to remember <laughs> You can't take my memories. Oh, no, Betty. (laughs) She and Barney were taken to their car where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. It'll be fun. Watch us drive away. Oh, God. They did so, then resumed their drive. I feel like that was them, like, giving them instructions. Mm -hmm. Like, in, like, a almost a hypnosis trance. You can, like, drive. Yeah. She told her dreams to Barney, who, probably feeling very scared, told her it was probably nothing to be concerned about. They were just dreams. He was like, don't... I think at this point, he was like, I don't know that I want to believe that something happened. And you're having, like, these dreams. These incredibly specific dreams? Yeah. That's what she was saying. She was just like, I've never had a dream like this before. But Betty wrote them all down. And later, it would be revealed that the star system that was showed to her was from Zeta Reticuli, a star over 200 trillion miles away from Earth. So she, like... Wrote something from memory, 
Oh, my God. somebody was able to figure out. It was actually, like, a school teacher was, like, like listening to the story that's, like, on the news and was just, like, let me take that paper and, like, in her free time, like, really dove down this path. Oh, my God. It was, like, like a Reddit (laughs) being, like, I'm going to figure this out. So it had been a very busy and scary couple weeks uh-huh. for the Hills. Betty had confided in her sister and her family and had no and they had no reason to doubt them. They weren't eccentric people and they clearly looked traumatized. Yeah. Barney and Betty would try to keep all of this under wraps for a while as not to weird out their neighbors. They figured that they would just live with their events together. So wait, did they do the hypnosis? Well, they will. I'll okay. Yep. Sorry. After a couple, so all of that so far is just from Betty's dream. Like right. that's like her. So she account has these of nightmares. That. Yeah, got it. After a couple of years, in 1963, the couple chose to be more vocal about their experience. Now it's like two years later, and they chose to talk to um, other UFO study groups that had like kind of formed, and they even discussed their encounters with their church group. They were just like, "We're clearly everyone could see something was wrong." They were like, "Talk to us." Oh they were like, "Well, <laughs> I bet you're not ready for this shit." Yeah. Can you imagine, like, what somebody would think they're going to say? Like, some church group? In a church group? They were like, Jesus did not prepare me. Yeah. (laughs) They had a speaker come in who was, I guess they had some, uh, in their church, they must have had, like. Alien specialists? Well, no, they had, like, uh, this, like, amateur hypnotist come in. In a church? Yeah. I don't know if it was, like, a, you know, like, an after church thing. Because I feel like churches would be like, that's the work of the devil. I know. So, I don't know. Um, Their church seemed okay. Their church is pretty cool. Yeah. It's the church of Satan. (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) So, they talked to this guy afterwards, and we're just like, so, like, this happened to us? But there's, like, this two-hour period of time that we can't remember. And that's obviously what he's, like, going to be interested in. But he told them that... He was a little too new with this, and he can clearly see how traumatized they are. So he was like, I don't feel comfortable working with you, but I know somebody that is very good at this. It's who I'm learning under. I think you should work with him. So they gave him the name of Dr. Benjamin Simon of Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Dr. Simon met with— or and he's a psychiatrist too, okay. obviously, because I think you have to be a psychiatrist to do, like, the hypnosis Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to be. Yeah. So when Dr. Simon met with Barney and Betty, he felt that he could uncover the lost two hours. They would be relieved to find out. And then he was like, they're going to find out. It's not really aliens. Something else happened. It's going to be aliens. (laughs) Though he was a little nervous because he was just like, it also could be something more traumatizing. So like this is we have to go at at a right pace. Simon could tell Barney was very anxious about the whole matter and a little unsure. Barney would say he was doing this more for his wife to help her understand her dreams. Simon Mm. would work with both Betty and Barney, starting off with separate sessions. He will note that they both undergo a lot of traumatic and emotional stress during these sessions. For the first several, he chose to not let Barney even remember what he was— like, they wouldn't even discuss what Barney would end up saying because he was clearly so, like, traumatized. And he didn't want him to, like— freak out even more aliens are bad man yeah so he was just like i'm gonna work with you through your sessions and once i feel like you can actually handle what you're saying then we'll discuss them betty's sessions went the way her dreams did for the most part it was during these sessions that simon had her draw the map from memory and then this map would be sent well actually so i thought that this map was like sent to people but that was where i ended up reading later it was just like this kindergarten teacher that or like a teacher that was just like i have some time i'll figure it out 
And then it had been sent after that. So other people were like, yes. Or some people were like, it is a star system. It's like further away. Like, yeah. That's bananas. So during Barney's session, he says that he kept his eyes shut during most of the examination because he was just fear. Or he was afraid. Oh, my God. He reported that the binocular strap had broken when, so now he's like under hypnosis. And he was just like, oh, I remember the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. He recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but that afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. He eventually sighted six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled and three of the men approached the road or approached the car. They told Barney not to fear them. He was still anxious, however. Oh, okay. You said don't be afraid. I won't. Yeah, right. (laughs) He was still anxious, however, and he reported that the leader told Barney to close his eyes. While hypnotized, Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Ew. Ew. Barney described the beings as generally similar to Betty's hypnotic recollection, which was only slightly different from her dreams. Uh, The beings often stared into his eyes with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. They're big fucking onion heads. Barney related that he and Betty were taken into a disc-shaped craft where they were separated. He was escorted to a room by three of the men and told to lie on a small rectangular exam table. Unlike Betty, Barney's narrative of the exam was less detailed as he continued to keep his eyes closed for most of the exam, Mm -mm. which kind of reminds me of, like, when you're in surgery Mm -hmm. and, like, if you almost, like, wake up but you can't open your eyes, like— That is my worst fear is that, like, I'll have that thing where you're in surgery and you wake up but you can't speak or anything and you're still paralyzed because some of the medication they give you— when you're under anesthesia, it just keeps you paralyzed, but that I will know everything and feel everything and not be able to ask for help. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, he said a cup-like device was placed over his genitals. <gasps> he did not experience an orgasm, though Barney thought that a sperm sample had been taken. He went right for the dick. He was right. The men scraped his skin and peered in his eyes and mouth. A thin tube or cylinder was inserted into his butt. I told you. And quickly removed. I told you they go right in the butt. They were just like, bam, bam. (laughs) (laughs) No, they always go. Were they just like, there's a hole. Boom, boom. Oh, no. Because it was just like quickly removed. It was just like, oh, things can go in there. Oh, no. We don't have one of those, which makes me wonder. I'm just like, do they not? They must not have buttholes. Or they were just going to get something up there real quick and they pulled it out. Maybe. We don't know how long it was. (laughs) Ew! One of the beings felt his spine and seemed like they were counting his vertebrae, too. So they were definitely, you know, just getting a bunch of info. Into his butt, yeah. Yeah. Betty reported a conversation with the leader that she understood in English, though English was a bit hard although the English that they were speaking was a bit hard to understand, um, but they weren't always talking in English. Barney said that he heard them speaking in a mumbling language he did not understand, um, yet he did understand them when they were talking in English. Both Betty and Barney stated that they hadn't observed the beings' mouths moving when they communicated, though, so um, Simon would later be like, they were probably speaking to you telepathically. I hate it. 
Barney recalled being escorted from the ship and taken to his car. In a daze, he watched the ship leave. Barney remembered a light appearing on the road, and he said, No, no, not again. (laughs) Yes, seriously. He recalled Betty's speculation that the light might have been the moon, though the moon had set several hours earlier. He also stated that he attempted to produce the code-like buzzing sounds, which seemed to strike the car's trunk a second time by driving from side to side and stopping and starting the vehicle. His attempt was unsuccessful. After many sessions, Simon made the conclusion that Barney's recollection of the UFO was in part due to Betty's recount of her own dreams. Mm -hmm. However, Barney, who at first was fairly skeptical, now felt pretty confident that he was definitely abducted by aliens. So there was a bit of a disagreement between the Hills and their hypnotist, though in the end, they both agreed that the sessions did help them immensely with their emotional distress. So even though that they were sure they were abducted by aliens, they at least, both them and their doctor, felt that they were, like, now at peace with their experience. If you can ever be. I know. That's what I was thinking about you writing that. I was like, should be like something went up my butt. No! I told you. <laughs> Put a long needle in your navel. Oh. <laughs> Every man's worst fear, they're going to go right for my dick! And I they know. did. They did. <laughs> The Hills went back to their regular lives. They were willing to discuss the alleged UFO encounters with friends, family, and the occasional UFO researcher, but the Hills apparently made no effort to seek publicity. So this is, like, also the interesting thing about them. They, like, didn't really want to talk about it. They wanted to talk about it to people that they trusted, Uh but they didn't want to, like, go out and be like, we saw the aliens. God. So on October 25th, 1965, a front-page story in the Boston Traveler asked, UFO chiller, did they seize couple? The reporter yes. was <laughs> Yes, they John, did. <laughs> the reporter was John H. Luttrell of The Traveler, who had allegedly been given an audio tape recording of the lecture the Hills had made in like in Quincy Center in like late nineteen sixty. So they had been like doing some of these things, but it wasn't really public. It was just for small groups. And then people were um starting to leak their story. And so this is how it got big. It was like this reporter got it and then like started talking about it. Yeah, it's fucking – that's something to talk about. He also was able to obtain notes from the confidential interviews that the Hills had given the UFO investigators to. So that's kind of shitty. Yeah. Yeah, so then in 1966, writer John G. Fuller secured the cooperation of the Hills and Simon – and wrote the book, The Interrupted Journey, where I got a lot of these passages from. And this was like a whole book about the case. The book included a copies of Betty's sketch, The Star Map. And the book was a quick success and went through several printings. And this, I think is probably where the teacher got that photo, oh, too. Yeah. So later in life, Betty claimed to have seen more UFOs a number of times after the initial abduction. And she became a celebrity in the UFO community. Oh. From what I uh, gathered, too, so at the beginning, Barney would speak a lot, Mm -hmm. and he was very well-spoken, and he was probably great for the UFO community. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, so he did a lot of the tours and would go around talking about all these things, and then he actually died in 1969 from a cerebral hemorrhage. um, From the fucking aliens. At the age of 46. Yeah, that's because they were like, we got to shut that one down. He's talking. I know. So, yeah, so he died suddenly, and then Betty kind of picked it up from there. And she is also a really good speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, it It is, like, if you get to hear any of 
her talk. She's like they're they're both very sane people. They're not yeah. lunatics or cuckoos. Uh, so, but Betty did die of cancer in October of two thousand four at the age of eighty five, never having remarried. Um, and based on her family too, they were saying that. Most of her family does believe her, but then later in life they were just like she's starting to sound a little bit more, especially when she's like, I keep seeing saucers everywhere. And they're like, oh, no, like this isn't good. But then she did have a tumor in her brain too, which, again, could have been from fucking aliens. Fucking aliens. I think they just shut her husband down. They put like a panic button in there. They're like, he's talking too much. Done. I know. Crazy. Aliens are the worst. Yeah, so – uh, a lot of their family is involved with uh, this kind of research and then even working with NASA and other things. So, Incidentally, the UFO community is the one community wherein I don't want to be a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be famous most other places. Not that one. <laughs> Bye. So funny. No. So, yeah. Yeah. Right Dennis, in the butt. I told right you. Right in the butt. <laughs> I hate it. Guys, I can't. I hate aliens so much. (sighs) Can you imagine that happening to you? That's terrible. I know. Nothing Mm -hmm. is more terrible. (sighs) I would leave the ghost experience and and be okay. I would never be okay again. I know. I know. I'm done forever. Toast? Toast. Oh, no. (laughs) Who do you want to toast from your story? Uh, Delcy, the dog. Yes. Although, don't need need a shit at a, at a moment like that. They, like— Hold your shit in! So one of the other things I read, uh, you know, people trying to debunk it, they say, um, well, the Hills kept saying that they kept pulling over to, like, take their dog out. And so they may have just, like, fallen asleep during one of these mm-hmm. times. But I just thought it was so funny. Like, this poor dog is just like, I have to go again. I'm sorry. <laughs> You guys, I have a really small bladder. Like, they had, like, four hours to drive, and they had to pull over, like, every 30 minutes, it sounded like. A four-hour drive, my dog would not get out at all. Right, no. He would just be like, I'm sleeping. It's fine. Well, because it was, so they stopped at that diner, and then 30 minutes later, it was just like, I have to go. (laughs) I I have so many shits. (laughs) Get out of here. No. So did Delcy for shitting a lot. (laughs) Oh, no, wait. I have to. Thanks for shitting, Delcy. Yay. Uh, and I guess oh, I will toast to Lily and her sad mom. I knew. I knew. I mean, they're the only real winners in this story. Yeah. Not winners, but they're the only, like, redeemable parts of yeah. this story, I suppose. There's just a lot of really awful things happen. So to Lily and her mom. Cheers. Toast. Do we have anyone else that we are toasting this week? We do not. Okay. That's why my skin is shriveling. <laughs> Oh, I was so, so dehydrated and parched. Help me. Help me. You look like a shriveled little apple. Okay. Uh, and if we were stuck in a creepy old asylum or sucked up in an alien spacecraft, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.
happy Halloween.